Hi and welcome to the New Health Club podcast. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to real innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental wellness and mental health. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. Hi and welcome to a new episode of the podcast. Today on my show I have Amanda Fielding as a guest and she has been called the hidden hand behind the renaissance of psychedelic science and she has been called the countess of psychedelics since she's living in Beckley Park, an estate outside Oxford and has certain ties to certain royal families I think. Her contribution to global drug policy reform and early psychedelic research has been pivotal and wildly acknowledged. Amanda was first introduced to LSD in the mid-60s at the height of the first wave of scientific research into psychedelics. Impressed by its capacity to initiate mystical states of consciousness and heightened creativity, she quickly recognized its transformative and therapeutic power. Today, she's the owner of the Beckley Foundation, a UK-based think tank and UN-accredited NGO, which is dedicated to activating global drug policy reform and initiating scientific research into psychoactive substances. So please enjoy Amanda Fielding. And I can just tell you, she has the best British accent I've ever heard. So I'm happy to have... Amanda Fielding on the New Health Club podcast today. We've met each other two times and one, the first time was a surprise meeting <laughs> kind of when we came to visit you for lunch and you didn't know who I was. Your, your history in psychedelics, you could say, is like one of the most important, I would say. And now we talked about this briefly in the beginning before we started recording. And uh, now is basically the time that everybody should really know The people who don't know you, you yet should know you now. So maybe you quickly introduce yourself. Yes. Well, um, my name's Amanda Fielding. I've been interested in altered states of consciousness, maybe since the age of five, six or something, very young. And it was always my passion to um, find out more. I had a, my godfather became a very famous Buddhist monk in, who lived in Sri Lanka, but I never met him, but I went there to seek him out. And um, then, so I studied uh, comparative religions and mysticism under the kind of world's leading um, professor in the subject at All Souls in Oxford. And as a 16-year-old, I went and sat, and we both sat very shy, neither of us really talking, because we were both so shy. And, um, and anyway, that really led my life where it has ended up. Um, and then I was introduced to cannabis when I was 16, and then um, LSD, I was lucky enough to um, come upon when I was about 23 in 1966, 65 actually. And I was amazed at its capacity to 
um, stimulate the mystical experience, basically, which is what I've been studying. And I suddenly realized, well, this is experience. There's no need to further reading. As a child, I'd, I'd experienced mystical experiences. I think lots of children do. And, um, and so, but I didn't really, I, I thought LSD was more like a trip to the fun fair than a, than a way of life in a sense. Wonderful, exciting, uh, all of that, um, but not something one could actually live on. I then, later, about a year later, I met a, a, a Dutch doctor, basically, who was also um, incredibly knowledgeable about natural history and um, definitely an oddball. And um, he had um, actually made LSD, which turned Europe on. And he also, um, well, he had done many interesting things, but he also had two hypotheses about what are the underlying um, mechanisms which bring about the altered state through taking um, psychedelics or cannabis or indeed many other ways like um, fasting or um, exercise, all these different techniques which get you top high. And I found it amazingly valuable to have better knowledge of how they work in the brain, how, how you can control your expanded consciousness. And having that knowledge, it suddenly became um, more um, a tool which one could use to alter one's consciousness. And our great kind of aim was studying how it could um, enhance cognitive functioning and also obviously fun and all those other things, but it was really um, thinking, uh, how does it change the functioning of the brain? And um, the other um, uh, hypothesis he had was about the, the ego, the ego being a conditioned reflex mechanism which directs the blood to the parts of the brain which are in needed to be in function. So it it was an understanding of how why we humans are so different to other animals because we developed this much higher, more highly developed um, ego mechanism um, which is um, kind of controlled by the recognition of the word, i.e. language. And those two hypotheses really kind of uh, changed my understanding of myself and how one works. And so from that point onwards, at that point, LSD was still legal and known as a wonder drug in 1965, 66. And um, so we enthusiastically talked about it um, and were researching it and, and lived on it and um, uh, met doctors and told them about it and journalists and and then uh, unfortunately Bart, he was called Bart Hugges, he was Dutch, um, did an interview with some newspaper, I forget which one it was, 
who then said this dangerous idiot should be thrown out of England because he said how, what a valuable compound um, LSD could be for um, treating different conditions like depression and um, post-traumatic stress disorder and um, that. But anyway, and then he was thrown out of England and um, we went together to the Netherlands and continued our studies and all of that. So that was really how I came to um, have a very intimate knowledge of LSD in particular and how to manage it, how to work with it, how to live on it to one's own best abilities. And I was amazed at how, what it added to my life. What would you say, what did it add? I mean, since you have such a kind of a long time now to a lifespan to look at it, what, what would you say, what did it add to your life? Well, I'd say it made a very fundamental change. I, I, I had always been um, motivated to, uh, with the wish to do um, good in the world. You know, as I grew up where I still am now in an extremely isolated place, very, very beautiful in the depths of the country on the edge of a moor where there was nothing much to do except kind of mooch around and kind of fantasize what life might lead to. And in my fantasies, I would be a heroine in the desert, whatever, watering the desert and, and doing all sorts of um, heroic acts. And then I realized when I met Bart and learned about cerebral circulation, that the problem wasn't really watering the fields or the desert. It was more watering the human brain, producing, providing more blood, more nutrients, more energy to the human brain. Because um, we're a brilliant species, but there's something seriously wrong with us, and which makes us a, a kind of underlying neurosis, unhappiness, uh, unreliable behavior, which is very unique to man together with the kind of brilliance of the things we can do and achieve and all of that. So I began to see our position more clearly and the human problem more clearly. And so then I really dedicated myself to the science of studying psychology and physiology and neuroscience and all of that with the aim of trying to better understand why we are in this position and what one can do to um, improve it. And um, because I'd been brought up much more in the world of art and um, literature and not, not in the scientific world, but I became um, very passionate about it. So that was the next period of my life which was a long period, was um, studying the brain in its altered states and learning how one can better control it and use it and increase one's um, 
cognitive capacity and also one's health and one's love of life and enjoyment. And I would say that the intelligent use of psychedelics can greatly um, add to one's life. I remember years ago someone saying, how much do you think um, your relationship with um, psychedelics has added to your life? And I said 60%. And, I, you know, I honestly feel that it had, it, it added an enormous amount to pleasure and also what I managed to do. Um, so I really thought that this this is a, a tool which we humans who are in, at the moment uh, heading for troubled waters, as I realised in the 60s and 70s when um, prohibition hit, um, and I could see what an absolute tragedy it was to criminalise these compounds when actually we should be studying them. That's what I realised, and I was trying to get the doctors and scientists to um, study them. But obviously, with the closing of the doors of prohibition, no one actually wanted to touch them anymore. And they became like, you know, the tools of the devil, like they'd been in the Inquisition. Um, not the, kind of the food of the gods as they had been used and termed in traditional uh, society. Um, but um, I mean, now it's kind of, a, there's kind of, you could say like a wave or like a movement towards also scientific proof, like in many different universities that, yeah, I mean, even uh, Germany now has one. So, I mean, so obviously it's something... Otherwise, studies wouldn't get funded, also not by, by countries. It seems like the need for these new tools is like as big as never before. Absolutely. But I would say that was very much due to my and various other people's dedication. I realized in 19, whatever, at the end of the 60s, 1968, um, that the only way forward was with the very best scientific research to investigate how these compounds work and how they can be used by humanity to benefit our situation. And so I, I dedicated myself to making that happen. And as the um, prohibition got more and more extreme, I mean, firstly, one could see what a disaster, what a terrible mistake mankind is making and it's underlined the kind of underlying madness of man that it should prohibit this um, this medicine which could be such an aid to help our suffering. So then one had to kind of, one couldn't actually for many years even talk about LSD. One would have to talk about some related um, subject. And so as I'd been an artist, I took up Express, trying to express it in art. And I, I had exhibitions at wherever I can't remember, ICA and, and uh, what was the place called in New York? Um, the PS1, was it called? A great, a, a lovely, I had a great big exhibition on I Got Trapanned as another way to increase um, 
one's consciousness, but at a much lower level. And so I gave an exhibition there, and she had a film show, and did all sorts of things in the aim of trying to get um, scientific research going. And um, but through art rather than through writing, because they didn't publish things on that sort of material anymore. But art people took as a joke, so you could do anything with art. And I mean, you you also very early on had started to making experiences with microdosing, um, and it's also something like you researched it in the Beckley Foundation, and it was a topic that I mean, you basically, I mean, if you if you look into articles about you, that you were probably one of the first people who actually had that. Yeah. Idea. <laughs> well, in in the early years, in in the sixties, yeah. um, we used to take LSD to work. That's how we did it. So we we took big in those days. A normal trip was two hundred and fifty micrograms, which today is considered large. So every day we took two hundred and fifty micrograms to keep up at the level we liked. But um, when you take a compound LSD repeatedly, it you get used to it. It's like hungry cows in a in a clover field. You get kind of used to it. So you have less of the kind of sugar lap, the less of the shock um, effect of it, but you still get high on it. So I, I grew to rather love that level. I find it easier to manage and um, it had cognitive and, and mood advantages with not the disadvantage of feeling wobbly and being slightly out of control and, um, you know, wondering if people noticed you looked a bit odd. So I, I very much liked the habit of the daily dose with gaps. And so that really was, I consider, that was right back in the 60s and 70s. Um, it was a kind of early form of microdosing. And um, I would say that they were the most productive years of my life. Those years I learned more and actually was doing fascinating work and um, it, it was a very exciting period. And um, I think microdosing is a very interesting, I mean, I think that what, one of the wonderful things about psychedelics, and I would say particularly LSD, is is how it changes with its different doses. How um, with a large dose, as we know from our research, um, which I, uh, I, I set up later, um, after brain imaging started to develop in the uh, 1990s, I decided I'd have to um, start using it to explore what are the underlying mechanisms. Now suddenly you could see a little bit of what are the underlying mechanisms are to the experience one's having. So I realized I'd have to um, get access to brain imaging. And as um, a single, with a female, without money and without letters after my name, I couldn't get access to it. So I decided to become a foundation, which was like an artwork in a sense, 
and I felt it would be useful to do the work I was doing. And actually, it was a brilliant idea, and it was very useful, because instead of being Amanda Fielding, I suddenly became, well, actually, first I had another title, which was, um, what was it, um, the Foundation to Further Consciousness. And then I thought that sounded not quite right, and so I changed the name to the Beckley Foundation, because it sounded like Berkeley or Bletchington or a lot of well-respected names. And anyway, it's the name of the house I've always lived in, which is here on the edge of Otmore, just outside Oxford. And then I was lucky enough... Well, Albert Hoffman was my first scientific advisor um, on my board, and then I got the the top um, neuroscientist in England, was a very nice man called uh, Colin Blakemore. Um, he became my next scientific advisor because I realised in order to get um, a, a position of where I could do things, I, I couldn't be myself. I'd have to, um, you know, have a front. So I got a very, very impressive board of scientific advisors, kind of the 15 or so um, top scientists in the world were very kind and became my scientific advisors. And then I realised I'd had to change global drug policy because other policy was blocking research. So in order to do research, one first had to change global drug policy and then simultaneously try to start doing um, research. So that was in 1998. And um, the first bit of research I did was what I was trying to look at is to see if the hypothesis that I'd lived on for the last, whatever it was by that stage, 98, um, 20 years or so, um, to see if it was, to what degree was it accurate. And the hypothesis was that the action of psychedelics constricts the veins, and by the constriction of the veins, you get more blood in the brain capillaries, i.e. blood enters the brain at the same rate, but as the veins are constricted, the blood can't exit from the capillaries, so the capillaries blow up and create a pressure which pushes out cerebral spinal fluid, which is the other fluid in the brain, and so um, you get a change in ratio between blood and cerebral spinal fluid, which is lost as gravity reclaims the blood which is heavier than cerebral spinal fluid. So it means you have more blood in your brain cells, in your capillaries, um, for a period of time. And that engenders more activity, and so more um, brain cells are um, combusting glucose and active simultaneously. So um, basically the overall level of consciousness is... Um, increased and at the same time we notice that the controlling repressive power of the ego is decreased so the brain becomes more functioning but more anarchical and um, so I, I started the foundation basically to use brain imaging to explore whether this hypothesis was correct or not and, or if I could pick it up if one could see what was changing. 
So it took me probably another 20 years before I managed to carry out that research with LSD. And, um, well, it, it was an interesting study. But, um, so then um, what I did was I wanted to bring attention to the world that um, calling all these compounds drugs is a very bad beginning because they're not at all similar. Uh, Different classes of drugs are completely different from other classes of drugs. And the drugs I was interested in were basically cannabis and the psychedelics, and they have whole different properties to, as we all know now, to um, whatever, methamphetamine, cocaine, um, um, opiates, etc. And strangely, no one at that point recognised that. A drug was a drug and they were all equally um, bad. So I started giving a series of very high-level seminars at the House of Lords because I always think if you can get in at the top, hopefully your influence can be greater than trying to change things from the bottom. So I gave a series of um, of seminars where the Home Secretary came, the head of NIDA and the head of Russian drug policy and all sorts of the head of the police and the prisons and and a lot of scientists, all the scientists I worked with came and gave presentations. So I um, put these um, seminars, which were by invitation only, and Chapman House rules, which means no one um, would talk about it outside the private setting. And they were very influential. They were the first time that these people had heard um, drugs talk about psychedelics and cannabis in that way. For instance, the head of NIDA, charming man called um, Charles Schuster, said how important his psychedelic experiences had been in his um, evolution and how it made him play whatever it was he played, the trombone or or whatever, Um, unlikely stories. So, um, and as I I would kind of orchestrate what what the people talked about and like with um, Colin Blakemore, I, I, I suggested we did a talk on um, the relative harms of different drugs. In fact, I suggested we did a talk on the relative harms and benefits of the different drugs. And he rightly said, well, Amanda, forget the benefits, because for one thing, no study has ever been done on the benefits. And secondly, no one would publish it if you said there were benefits. So let's keep to the harms. So we did an interesting um, paper on the, the um, various harms of drugs, and which later became famous when um, Dave Nutt then um, built it up more. And um, it showed um, all one's favourite compounds like psilocybin and LSD right at the bottom of the harms and all the favourite compounds like alcohol at the top of the harms. So they were very influential, those um, things. And then 
I, I became a, a UN-accredited NGO and, and presented reports. Um, I got none at the UN and on um, the most important one was called um, on, on cannabis policy. No one had done an overall report on cannabis use around the world. Okay. And, But I mean, in, in terms of microdosing again, it's like a couple of years fast forward, one could think right now that it's could turn into a medication or like, let's say there are startups, for example, like MindMed, who engaging in researching um, microdosing LSD again, like from the beginning. So yeah. leading up to a medication kind of, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've been researching LSD for several years now and um, done a very interesting study on um, dosing, investigating dosing, which has shown how a certain dose is extremely valuable at it, um, in improving mood, um, improving cognitive functioning, and improving the management of pain and increased attention, increased focus. And that was a, actually the great improvement with the 20 mics. And um, so, and then we're doing another one on repeated dosing within a lab and another one on um, the use of microdosing with depression And about four others, uh, I mean, I'm doing a very, very interesting one, um, which goes, uh, it's microdosing and above, on um, looking at its effect in the cells. So in mini brains, one sees how it changes um, uh, neuroplasticity, um, neurogenesis, and inflammation, among other factors in the cells, so it increases the connectivity in the cell. And then in the brain, it also increases co um, connectivity. And then between people, it increases connectivity. So actually, what the psychedelics do, as if you want to sum it up, is increase connectivity at every level, from the cell to, um, to the brain, to um, the group. An outwards kind of thing. We did a rather fascinating um, thing, and I I have great faith in the potential of microdosing to be in a very very useful form of uh, medication in time. I mean, funny enough, we, we've just completed a study which has shown how much of it is um, placebo. Um, how much effect placebo takes. So as, such a, as it has such a small, low-level um, effect on change, it's difficult to, to um, tease out what is placebo and what is reality. Um, but I'm in no doubt that it brings about a change in reality. And I think we will learn to use it in all sorts of different conditions, not only psychological ones, but also for conditions, physiological conditions, like um, 
um, neurodegeneration, neurodegeneration and um, conditions like um, Parkinson and Alzheimer's. And we're doing research on that at the moment. That's very interesting um, too, yeah, regarding yeah. These, these kind of... Um, in German, there's this word civilization diseases, like disease coming from the civilization you basically have created around yourself. But I mean, um, what I find interesting also is that, I mean, if all what well, the majority of mental illnesses at the moment when you read new research is always kind of leading back to a certain kind of trauma in people's lives, even as a, either as a child or like later on. So, and I mean, if you, if you think about that psychedelics can actually erase, hopefully traumas that you have experienced like long time ago. So at one point that means trauma will disappear altogether. Is that like a total fantasy or? <laughs> I, I think that's a bit um, of an, um, oversimplification. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, I I agree. Trauma is very at the basis of a lot of things, as is inflammation, and maybe trauma creates inflammation. Um, but why uh, the actually I I set up a, a, one of the research projects I set up was. Um, at Imperial College called the Beckley Imperial Research Programme. I, I worked very closely with Dave Nutt, who was on my advisory board, and suggested we, we collaborated on doing work on psychedelics, so we set up um, this programme together. And um, then later, um, Robin K. L. Harris joined us as an investigator, and um, we did some very interesting work on psilocybin first, because LSD was too taboo, which actually I was wanting to do, but again, had to wait another, whatever, five years before we could do LSD. And we did work on psilocybin. And the first study, and I was very keen on studying the change in blood supply, expecting to see an increase in capillary volume. And strangely, the thing we, so we used fMRI to investigate that. And um, what was the biggest change was a decrease of blood supply to the part of the brain called the default mode network, which is the kind of modern terminology for what used to be called the ego, the controlling network superimposed on the rest of the brain, which kind of controls where the blood goes and where concentration goes. And we noticed that the blood supply was reduced during the psychedelic experience. And um, so as it is the controlling factor which senses what gets into consciousness and what doesn't, suddenly all the usually repressed parts of the brain started to communicate with each other. And mm -hmm. so suddenly there was a mass of explosion of connectivity through the whole brain. And this state, um, for one thing, it kind of um, stimulated, it could stimulate the peak experience, which could be a mystical type experience of unity 
and um, loss of ego and um, unification with the universe or God or however one felt it. And this turns out to be an extremely neuroplastic state. So if a person enters this state with the kind of right mood and intention and is feeling safe, they can reset themselves. It's like suddenly you can shake, sh- shake the system. And the old maladaptive setting, which is kind of, in the sense, probably ruined their lives by making them depressed or addicted or obsessional or any of these psychological malfunctionings, could be dispersed, dispensed, done away with, and a new setting could be put in place which was better adapted uh, to a happy life for the person. And it's rather amazing, I find it rather wonderful, that at the centre of this new paradigm change in um, psychiatry and medicine is a mystical experience, actually. And it's rather fascinating that whereas science and religion have separated and become kind of rival competitors, both not loving the other, now suddenly they've got reunited in this experience of healing. And because what we found is it is that state of ego loss which is the peak of bringing about a change in um, trauma and the the bad settings which have come with it. And so um, that was a new finding. And then the next study, so then we did a study with um, psilocybin to treat treatment-resistant depression. And it was a small pilot study, but we got very successful results. 67% of the people overcame their treatment-resistant depression in the first period, and then it it fell to 42-3%, which is still much, much higher than one gets from any current available treatment. And that was because if if the person enters the state in a relaxed way with a good safe setting and um, subtle therapy which enables the person to heal themselves from inside, basically. Um, It seems as though it's a new channel, a new passage from which healing of this internal trauma can take place. And um, it's amazingly more successful, actually, than SSRIs, which you, on the whole, have to take every, you know, for a lifetime, or and they have side symptoms and can make people feel suicidal and depressed. And I mean, there's a percentage of people that gain from lessening anxiety, but it's more a sticking plaster than a healing the source of the problem. Whereas. Yeah, it seems that the psychedelic heals it at the source.
Yeah, and I mean, uh, like shortly before, after we met, I think like a couple of months later, I had this first guided LSD experience with a psychiatrist. And I mean, like, let's say I, I can easily say that and that I saw the first time the person or even more precise, the woman I really am. And I always kind of thought that I would be that woman, but I could never really see it before. I could never really see like her standing there <laughs> and just talking to other people and being pregnant and whatnot. So it was just like such a revelation. And this experience is like, it's like, like it's happened yesterday. So in the brain, it doesn't seem to go away, right? I mean, it's not like you've seen a movie like years ago and then you really don't remember who was the main yeah. character, so and so. So it's it's such an intense change in your brain that this person or like the egoless person, whoever you want to call it, some people see themselves as uh, post-its flying through the world, like Michael Pollan. <laughs> I saw myself yeah. as a very wealthy, pregnant woman. So, yeah. but it's like it happened. I mean, it's now, like I said, it's a year ago, but it feels like it happened like two hours ago. And it's like so... Yeah. In, ingrained in my brain that it's like yeah. so fascinating how this can happen yeah. at all kind of yeah yeah and i i think it is is just because there's so much more activity in so many different parts of the brain simultaneously it's a much richer experience than our normal daily consciousness so it burns a much greater flame and therefore you kind of remember it and The intensity of it is more. And I, I think that experiencing altered states is a great um, potential advantage for society. Not to say it suits everyone, but in traditional society, I think from the very beginning of the cultural evolution of Homo sapiens, we have used these compounds like, I don't know if you know, the caves of Chauvet, which are whatever it is, 40,000 40, BC. So they're the very beginning of our cultural um, experience. But they were obviously drawn, I mean, their artworks such has never been bettered. And they were obviously drawn on a very high state of consciousness. The so people had to climb through a long black tunnel to get to a cave which was pitched back and then draw these amazing scenes like inside the brain of humans chasing great big animals which are so, so realistic, so amazingly lifelike. And I do think that the, it's, it's a, you can see through cultural history which cultures have peaked on psychedelics, I have had them at the center of their cultural makeup. They're kind of high points. It's like when you cut through a tree, you can see what happened in, in the different years. And those peak experiences um, can be shown through our cultural history. And, and they've happened throughout our history. And then they became taboo in a strange way. And or they were first secret, they were very often secret, and then that became taboo, and then it kind of led into the Inquisition, 
Christianity was very good at suppressing it, sadly. Very good. <laughs> yeah. But um, hopefully now, with science, I hope one can tease it out of the shadows and, and the taboo and, and hopefully demonstrate what an extraordinarily valuable friend of man these tools can be and like they used to be called they used to be called the food of the gods and maybe yet again we can start kind of um, nibbling at them and uh, benefiting from their <laughs> their effects which means microdosing again <laughs> so but I mean so where would you like to see this whole industry go i mean like i think since a year you could say that's one of the fastest growing investor tech industries um i feel like every day there's a new startup coming and a new vc fund so it's a very interesting situation but also like you know it could be a very dangerous situation right now absolutely and it has to an old timer like me it has benefits It's great. I mean, I, it's unbelievable. People actually think suddenly say to me, "Manda, I always thought you were mad, but now I realize you're right all along." <laughs> you know, that's that's nice to hear. But at the same time, in some ways, it makes doing the science more difficult, because I used to be able to say to a scientist, "You know, shall we collaborate? I know a lot about psychedelics. Let's work together, and we'll see what we find." And one could get it. Always, science is expensive, but relatively inexpensively. Now there are many more people all wanting to um, get in on what they see as the gold rush of the cannabis, um, smoke and mirrors of that um, gold rush has kind of floated over onto the psychedelic world and uh, the few of us who've been yeah. chiseling away trying to get psychedelics recognized as the wonders that they are, um, one's now over run by people, you know, buying up the research and the scientists. And so in some ways it's more difficult, but in other ways it's going the right direction because obviously what one wants is for these compounds to become regulated, legal um, medicines. And not only medicines, they are actually, in many ways, the, the food for transformation of people as well and so one wants to in time get to be able to recognize both their values of healing sickness and enhancing wellness and um, yes. that I, I think is very important one mustn't be too kind of puritanical about the whole thing and think it's only for healing sickness obviously that's incredibly important and that's the kind of um, washing line on which the fruit is clothes are hung at the moment but actually to make people more compassionate more mindful that's what our research has also shown that it not only like most compounds leave a hangover the psychedelics leave an afterglow and scientific research shows that it's increased mindfulness, it's increased compassion, increased openness, increased um, enjoyment. Also purpose, purpose, like that you find a lot of people say they were kind of, or the experience with leading 
will lead them to their purpose in life. Maybe not like yeah. straight on the straight path, but oh, kind of in the end, they ended up there where they were supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've met many, many people in the first last 50 years who said if it wasn't for psychedelics, I wouldn't be doing this rather wonderful thing. Mick Jagger, for example. <laughs> What? Mick Jagger or yeah. Steve Jobs. Yeah, I mean, but many, in, in many strands of life. And that's because it suddenly floods your whole brain with life and uh, with activity, with function. And maybe you suddenly see your mistakes and you see possible wonderful things you can do and you have the kind of inner strength to feel you can do them. I mean, when I grew up in the depths of the country, hardly ever leaving the property, I mean, I, I wouldn't have ever believed that I could have gone out and changed global drug policies and opened up research and all of those things. But funny enough, it gives you that energy. So if you decide to do something... It also never ends, that energy. I feel yeah. it's so interesting that it's just once you have that experience what to whatever it is, it's like, okay, this is now... Now it's just like a like a go, and then you just go. You never really stop anymore, kind of. Yeah, and you have more confidence that you can do what you want to do, what you decide to do. And I I think it's actually what our, our poor humanity, who actually is um, not only suffering this pandemic, but it's also suffering an epidemic of um, mental illness. And we are kind of rather like lemmings charging for the, the cliff front. You know, we're a troubled species and getting more troubled. And hopefully this kind of um, change of vision which can come about, a change of priorities, um, if well used and well integrated into society, obviously we've done a lot of damage by prohibiting it because wherever you prohibit great kind of repressed structures build up and then everything gets out of balance and so it's not ideal in the 60s we should have welcomed what was happening actually the 60s were bringing in um, a new love of spirituality a new breaking down of barriers new music new art a lot of wonderful new health new things But instead of that, the memory of the 60s is fighting and bad and has to be repressed. Well, funny enough, governments are just a projection of the ego. And you see very much, you know, what you see in a human brain being either mad or bad or something also out there in the government. Um, but sure. hopefully you can also see... So we have a lot of egos right now in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fighting against each other. Psychedelics um, dissolves egos. Knowing the psychedelic world as well as I do, you can't um, say it's a perfect medicine to dissolve egos. But I think it has has um, great abilities to make human humanity um, come more at peace with itself. But of course. So where have we got to? We've got to the stage where now suddenly people are prepared to talk about the subject. Um, still, one can't do research on LSD how I want. I mean, it's infinitely more problematic than any other research um, to do. 
but hopefully that will slowly dissolve. But then, obviously, the next, once one's got the research going, and of course, the trouble with research is extremely expensive. And um, on the whole, governments don't fund it. Um, so, I mean, someone like myself, I'm completely dependent on um, philanthropic um, donations, which can be quite difficult, in fact, very difficult to find. Now, actually, my son and I have started a um, for-profit company to um, bring um, certain compounds to regulation. And um, that, uh, like, um, uh, there are several companies beginning at the moment. But also another thing I'm doing at the moment, which is very exciting, is starting um, a clinic, a psychedelic assisted clinic, where people will be able to, hopefully, we're going to do research and um, and give therapy in the, in the clinic. Where is it going to be? Um, in in Jamaica? In Barcelona. Because they have okay. better regulations in Barcelona. Um, natural compounds, psychedelic compounds, are not illegal. They've never been made illegal. So... Um, one can more easily do research with them. And uh, another benefit is that one can even do research on healthy people in, in, in other countries. One has to, on the whole, do it on a sick population. But there one can investigate how these compounds can help enhance health as well as sickness. And... Um, so that um, hopefully will be um, um, opening shortly, and um, also looking at other clinics, but trying to get access so people can um, get, you know, if they're seriously depressed or whatever, having serious problems or addicted, they can, um, if the physician thinks it was the right approach, they can get the medicines which can hopefully speed up or help them overcoming the problem. So um, that's another stage. There's all sorts of change at the moment, as you're obviously very well aware, and that's very exciting. Um, Also hopefully setting up a lab to make compounds. um, And I rather like the way of doing it as um, ethical capitalism, where you put the fact that you're um, trying to make the world a happier place and improve the the lot of the human beings and first, and then if you can make it pay for itself and make a profit, that's one better still. But the aim is to... Um, do good basically in the world so it's a very exciting phase at the moment i think yeah and you still have a lot of work to do in your next 20 years yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not for me the 20 years but there's still a lot i can do in hopefully in the next how old was albert hoffman like 103 or something yeah he was 102 well two. there you go 102 and funny enough i promised to him when he was in his 90s, that um, by his 100th birthday, I would 
um, undertake LSD research, which would start the process of getting his compound accepted as the wonder baby, not the problem child. And um, I missed the 100th birthday, but um, I did what I promised <laughs> by uh, doing a research at the Beckley Imperial Study, which showed how LSD works for the first time in the brain. And mm -hmm. we launched it at the Royal Society because I thought that would have been a nice little wow. twist for him. But he sadly Great. died by then. So thank you so much. That was, as always, super interesting. I mean, of course, like every time we meet, we could talk for another three hours with your knowledge about all of this. But um, it's really amazing that we could have the conversation because since you're really one of the few people that are working on this for such a long time already. Right, right, yes. And it's lovely to have all the new people working on it because more people who work on it and get involved, the quicker and better it will be, I think. So, um, no, it's very exciting times and I'm very happy to see you doing your wonderful work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> actually, yeah, I mean, it's like... It's really interesting, like how we actually got to meet, but I'm going to write this in a newsletter, so I'm not going to say it now. <laughs> All right. Have a great day in, in, um, in Oxford. Thank you.